We are up to chapter 3, Mishnah number 19. This is one of those Mishnahs you can read in four or five seconds, but you can really study the implications of it over a lifetime. This is the third Mishnah in a row whose author is the great Rabbi Ativa, and we're going to read it and try to delve into the very deep ideas and maybe some of the most challenging dilemmas of Jewish philosophy that are in, included in this Mishnah. Hakol Tzafui, everything is foreseen. Veharashus Nasuna, yet the freedom of choice is given. Ubetuv Haolam Nadon, with goodness the world is judged. Veharkol Lefirov HaMaaseh, and everything is in accordance with the abundance, with the preponderance of deeds. So it seems like it's a very... It's not, it's not clear what the intent of the, of the Mishnah is. Everything is foreseen. Freedom of choice is given. With goodness, the world is judged. Everything is in accordance with abundance of one's deeds. It doesn't seem to be easily identifiable as what exactly Rabbi Tiva wants to convey to us. Now, I think t- to study it, I found a very remarkable statement from the Rambam. And every time, if you study the Rambam, you know that, that every once in a while, he, he gives you like an introduction. He's, he's trying to get your attention. And he, and he says something that really should, you know, should perk up your, your ears and your mind. So in his comment in this Mishnah, he says, This statement includes great matters, and it is appropriate that its author is Rabbi Akiva. And I'm going to explain it to you very succinctly, but I'm only going to explain it to you on condition that you've read everything that I've taught in the past. So the Ramam very frequently references his previous work. And he's saying to you, okay, if you've read everything till now, if you're up to date, if you've been with us up to this point, then you can listen to what I have to say, or otherwise you won't get it. So again, when you read that in preamble, you know that there's something very powerful being, being conveyed here. And... It seems like all the commentaries, of course, as we know, we've been studying Pirkei for a while. We know that all the commentaries sometimes have their own flavor on a given Mishnah. They have their own their own style and how they convey the message. But it's almost universal that the understanding of the first portion of the, Mish- of the Mishnah relates to a very naughty dilemma of Jewish philosophy. And it begins, Hakol Tzafui. Everything is foreseen. It's foreseen, of course. By God. God has foreknowledge of everything. We believe that the Mahdi knows not only what we do, but what we will do and what we did. Not only what we think, but what we will think, what we thought. Not only what we said, what we will say in the future, what we say in the present. All the knowledge of everything is known to God and is foreseen by God. But the problem with that, of course, is that we believe that there is a role for us to play. The Jewish understanding of the reason why the world is created is because ultimately the the bottom line is it's to be an arena of free will choices for mankind. We're the one unique species that is a conflicted species. We're a hybrid we're half an animal, half an angel, and we have to choose which way to veer with our actions, with our thoughts, and with our speech. And that's what we call collectively free will. And the Torah tells us, Behold, I've placed before you life, good, 
death bad, choose, choose life. And the Torah itself is, it's, it's an offer for us. Obey the Torah. Great things will happen to you. You'll have a good life here. You have a good life in the afterlife in Omaba. Or unfortunately, if you choose the other side, you'll have to deal with the consequences of disobeying God. Implicit in that, implicit in the whole Torah is the fact that we have a choice. Implicit in a critical component of Jewish philosophy is that, you know, there's the idea of reward and punishment. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Reward and punishment is a necessary component of Torah. And of course, it is explicit in many places in the Torah, the concept of reward and punishment. Well, reward and punishment can only be meted out in the event that people deserved the good consequences of their mitzvot and the bad consequences of their sins. But if God knows everything ahead of time, if God knows the decisions that I'll make tomorrow, is it really possible for me to make those decisions? Are we just filling in the blanks in the tapestry that the Almighty already hasn't planned ahead of time? This is a very interesting question. It's a very difficult question. And it really gets to the heart of, of theology and of, and, and of Jewish philosophy. And I think the question could be expanded even more broadly. You know, the, the question here is presented in, 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 in the context of us making choices. Our very existence evokes the same question. Why? I exist. And of course, we believe that God exists too. And God's all powerful. But I'm not God. Ergo, there's something that exists independent of God. How does that not conflict with God being omnipotent, with God being infinite, with God having no limitations? Isn't the fact that I exist as a standalone entity independent of God, by definition, a limitation on God's control over everything? So, of course, we're viewing it here in the context of us making choices, but the broader context, how do we exist? Our existence itself seems to run afoul with the understanding of, of God. So Rabbi Tiva's literally four-word question and answer, is all we get really from him on this subject. Everything is foreseen, yet free will exists. He doesn't really explain how those two coincide. He just throws it out there. These two are both true. In our heads, they're irreconcilable. But Rabbi Tiva's telling us they are reconcilable. They're both true simultaneously when in our in our in our minds, they're mutually exclusive. So the Ramam elaborates, everything in the world is known to God. He understands it. He knows it. He foresees it. And don't think that as a result of him knowing our actions, that necessitates that we have to take those actions. As if man is pigeonholed, is forced to act in any way of the potential options before him. That's not true. No. The permission is given to people to do what they want, and therefore Rabbi Kiva tells us the permission is given, meaning that every person has the ability to make choices. So this is the solution, but it doesn't really give us any explanation. The Rambam, my mother, this is the very same Rambam, in the Laws of Repentance, dedicates essentially a whole chapter to understanding the role that free will plays. Again, it's in the context of 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 repentance, because after all, repentance can only exist if free will exists. And then he, he links the concept of free will to many core principles in Torah and Torah philosophy. 
And he says, well, if without, without, without free will, you can't have Torah. The whole idea of God saying, Torah, it's your choice to obey it or not, again, presupposes free will. And the notion of repentance presupposes free will. And the notion of reward and punishment presupposes free will. And then he asks the question, wait a minute, isn't there an obvious contradiction between the two? Perhaps you may say, after all, the Almighty knows everything that happens before it happens. He knows that the person who turned out to be a tzaddik, to turn to be righteous, would have been righteous. He knew that already ahead of time. And he knew that the person who turned out to be wicked, he knew that ahead of time as well. And therefore, does he know it? If he knows it, is it possible for the person to have not ended up in that way? And if he doesn't know it, well, he doesn't know it. Then you have a different problem. So how do these two truths reconcile is the question the Ram addresses. And again, he gives us a preamble. You should know that the answer to this question is longer than the land. I drive every summer from Houston to Toronto. The land, I can assure you, is very long. Moreover, it is broader than the oceans. And many important principles and many tall mountains hinge upon this question. However, you must know and you must understand the matter that I am giving you. And if people study Ramam, this is a very unusual introduction. It's very, somebody says you should know this. But now he's given this whole introduction. The answer is very long and very broad and many, many important principles hinge upon it. He's trying to get our attention in a very clear way. And he gives a distinction. It's very hard for us to read because almost by design, we're precluded from understanding it. Like we'll explain. So he tells us that the Almighty's knowledge is different than human knowledge. The reason why we have this question is because we're conflating divine knowledge with human knowledge. Why? Because the Almighty's knowledge is not external to him, whereas our knowledge is external to us. A human is a separate entity from that human's knowledge, whereas God is not a separate entity from God's knowledge. Rather, he, his existence, his name, and his knowledge, it's one. But humans don't really understand that. And therefore, we can't fully understand God. Even Moses, Moses wants to understand God fully. God says, no, you can't fully understand because a human can't see God and live. What is in fact telling us? Humans, their knowledge is cumulative. So you have a baby, an infant, the baby really knows nothing. The baby is ignorant. The Pythagorean theorem is something they don't know. And then they go to school and they learn the Pythagorean theorem. And now they know it. So they have assimilated that knowledge into themselves. But that knowledge once did not exist in their mind. And now it does exist in their mind. So their knowledge is cumulative. God's knowledge, says the Ramam, is not cumulative. God's knowledge is static. It's not dynamic. It doesn't progress. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't increase. The only way that that could be true is if it's outside of the constraints of time. You know, the the child knows nothing, and over time they learn. And their learning is a progression through time. The Almighty is outside and above time and space, and therefore his knowledge 
is not something that he learns, it's something that he is. That's what the Ram is telling us. And he says, if you don't understand it, it's because you are limited, you are finite. How could finite understand the infinite if when they're designed, they're engineered to not understand it? We're finding tension between what we can potentially understand and God. And we have to understand that there's limitations of, our, of, of what we can understand. We can understand up to a point and we can understand that there's two things that are true. We don't see how they can be reconciled, but we know they're both true. The Ramah is in effect telling us that there's two truths that exist and we can know that each one of these two are true, independent of each other. But what we don't understand is how they can both be true simultaneously because we don't understand how God's knowledge works. We conflate it with our knowledge, and therefore our knowledge is cumulative knowledge, and therefore God accumulated the knowledge of my future action, and therefore he knows ahead of time. Again, the notion of knowing ahead of time is a uniquely human phenomenon. It does not apply to God. And therefore, the way to kind of simply answer the question is that my knowledge today, does that influence my decision of yesterday? Yesterday I had a decision. I made a choice. Today, I'm existing post-facto. I'm existing after the choice was already made. Does my knowledge post-facto, does that limit my decision at the time? So obviously, we would say no. I had a decision yesterday. I made the decision yesterday. And today's after the decision was already made. And my knowledge today in no way impinges on my decision yesterday. Well, if God exists outside of time, then God exists after my decision. God exists outside of the realm of decision-making. So why would his knowledge of my decisions influence those decisions any more than my knowledge of my yesterday's decisions didn't influence the decisions at the time? And what it's in fact telling us is that decisions that we have, that we make, only exists within the constraints of time, God's knowledge of those decisions exists outside the constraints of time, and therefore they're on different wavelengths and they don't conflict. He's acknowledging that it's hard for us to understand the concept of God existing out of time, but the fact that we can't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. So this answer, it could be a little bit frustrating because, in effect, the Ramam is telling us that God's knowledge is linked to God's essence. Those are, those are the same. And therefore, just like we can understand God's essence, what is, what is an entity that doesn't have any limitations, that's infinite, it's not bound by time and space? That's something that we can't understand because we are a creation that is limited to the constraints of, of time and space. But I think the, the framing of the answer is very helpful. That it's not a limited component of decisions. Like, oh, I have a decision. God knows my decision. It's okay. You have to hit the whole package. God's existence necessitates that he's outside of time and space. And therefore, his knowledge of the events is not within the realm of time and space. And therefore, does not impinge on my decision, with which is within the realm of time and space. But that answer is not something that we can connect to on a sensory level, just like you cannot see God on a sensory level. You cannot connect to it because your senses are also designed to have those same limitations. Therefore, we can't fully understand it. And that's not – it's not a cop-out to try to answer the question. 
It's just an acknowledgement that we cannot fully conceptualize God because we are humans. And therefore, we can understand God to a certain level. But even Moses, there was limited, there was limits, there was a ceiling that he could not get past. And even angels can't get past a certain level. Of course, we can increase our understanding, but we cannot fully understand God because the only entity that could fully understand God, according to Jewish theology, is, of course, God himself. That's the first part of the Mishnah. Again, he, he's with four words, he's addressing some of the most grave and difficult subjects of, of Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology. And then with the second part of Mishnah, he deals with another very difficult, very naughty, very problematic dilemma. What does he tell us? He tells us that with goodness, the world is judged. You may think the world is not judged in a good way, in a fair way, in a, in a just fashion. No, it is indeed judged in a good way. And everything is in accordance with the abundance of, of one's deeds. So it's a very mysterious last line. What does it mean that everything is judged or everything is in accordance with the abundance of one, of one, of one's deeds? So there's a debate in the commentaries. Are these two separate things? God judges the world good with goodness and everything is in accordance with one, with, with one's deeds or are they connected? Just like the first two are connected that everything is foreseen yet we have choice. Kind of the, it's kind of two halves of one idea. There are some that break out the last two sentences into two separate ideas whereas other commentators, they connected. It's again two halves of one whole. So we'll go through some of those commentaries. So the Ruach Haim, which is authored by Rav Chaim Velazhner, he has a very short comment on this, but then he says, I'm hinting at it, and wink, wink, if you get it, you get it, you probably won't get it, but if you understand what I'm talking about, then this is the idea. So he tells us the world is judged properly, the world is judged with goodness, even when you see the wicked flourishing, you should know that this is also part of God's good judgment. In effect, what he's telling us is that another major dilemma, major problem of Jewish philosophy, the question of theodicy, of why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, is being addressed by Rabbi Kiva in this Mishnah. If you remember, the Rambam told us that it's fitting, it's apropos that Rabbi Akiva is the one that is conveying this message. We know that the canonical example of bad things happening to good people in the Talmud is the death of Rabbi Akiva. When you want to present as the epitome of the problem of theodicy, you go to the story of the death of the passing of Rabbi Akiva. And he's at the center of this question. He's at the center of the question of trying to reconcile how God judges the righteous and how God judges the wicked. It doesn't seem to be fitting it seems like people are being judged and the world's not being judged in a fair way, in a just way. And therefore, he's the one who fittingly tells us that everything is is done according to plan. Now, the Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 61b relates the story of the death of Rabbi Tiva. The short version of it is that he was, of course, uh, one of the great sages in the end of the first and the beginning of the second century of the Common Era after the temple's destroyed. And the Romans are in control. Jews don't no longer have hegemony, have sovereignty of land of Israel. Temples destroyed by the Romans. 
Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem, for example. They move north, they move to the coastal parts. And there's various times over the course of those decades where the Romans institute crippling, draconian, harsh decrees against Jewish practice. At one point, they banned public Torah study on pain of death. And Rabbi Akiva, in defiance, he gathers the masses and he teaches them Torah. And to the naysayers, he says, listen, this is our life. If we don't study Torah, we're dead. So yes, if we do study Torah, we may be dead. But if we don't study Torah, we're definitely dead. Eventually, the Romans arrest him. They imprison him. There's many stories in the Talmud that relate to what happened to Rabbi Akiva in prison. He was still teaching Torah to people outside of prison. He was still doing all kinds of, of work, executing his role as the leader of the Jewish people. But eventually, they they murdered him in a really horrific and really macabre way. They flayed him alive. And the Talmud tells a story, very haunting story. He's reciting the Shema, and the students are like, he's saying the Shema now? He says, well, every day I wanted to die for God. When I said the Shema, I wanted to die for God, and now I finally have the opportunity. And as he's saying the last word of the Shema, the word, the first uh, sentence, Echad, his soul departs, and then we get an epilogue to the story. There is a prophetic voice that announces, praiseworthy is Rabbi Tiva, whose soul departed with the word Echad. And then the Talmud tells us that at that time, there was a huge uproar in heaven. The angels came to God and said, this is, this is inappropriate. What's happening here? This is the Torah. This is its reward. Rabbi Kiva, the greatest sage of his era, someone who started with nothing, came the, the, the great sage to represent the Jewish people. And this is the reward. This is what you allowed, allowed to happen. Even the angels don't understand how it's fair. The treatment that Rabbi Kiva is, 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 uh, is having and how the Almighty allows that to happen. In a second Talmudic teaching, in the book of Menachos, on page 29b, the Talmud records that Moses, when he went up to heaven at Mount Sinai, he asked the Almighty, why is the Almighty making crownlets above the letters? And the Almighty tells him, well, Rabbi Tiva is going to study not only the words, not only the sentences, not only the letters, but also the designs, the crowns, the jots and tittles above, above the letters. And Moses is so impressed with him, he asks to see his reward, and the Almighty pulls a fast one, seemingly, and shows him the same scene that the angels witnessed. The Romans are flaying him, they're weighing his, his, his flesh is being weighed by the butchery. Terrible, terrible things that he sees. And he comes back to God and says, this is a Torah, this is the reward. Moses also doesn't understand how it's fair. And the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin on page 38b tells us that Adam was privy to all the future movers and shakers of history. They might have shown him a book, and in the book it had an entry every generation, who were the great sages, and who were the great scholars, and who were the great leaders. He, he got to witness all the future generations. And it, he makes only one comment. When he saw the generation of Rabbi Akiva, he was delighted in his Torah and saddened in his passing. And I think we could have a conclusive takeaway that if the angels and Moses and Adam before he sinned, if they don't understand the death of Rabbi Tiva, we probably won't fully understand it either.
And isn't it interesting that Rabbi Tiv himself says, no, 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 the world is being judged with goodness. It's almost as if Rabbi Tiv himself understood it, and he was, to a certain degree, on a higher level than Adam, than Moses, than the angels. He understood that it was, it was good, even though they did not. The Talmud also tells us, another story about Rabbi Tiva. he had a motto, he had an axiom that he would repeat again and again, tell students, a proverb that he would convey to his students. Everything that happens to you have to say, this is also for the best, this is also God's goodness. Everything that money does is good. And the Talmud writes a story, he was traveling, and he had a donkey to, to travel with, and he had a rooster to wake him up in the morning, and he had a candle to study Torah at night, and he went to this certain town, and he asked for lodging. No one would offer him lodging. So what does Robert Kiva say? He doesn't say, hey, these town people are all sinners, they're all wicked, they're all like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, okay, this is good also. So he goes and he finds a place to sleep in the fields. In the middle of the night, tragedy upon tragedy befall him. Animals come and consume and kill his donkey, his rooster. The wind comes and blows out his his candle. And despite all these bad things happening to him, he sticks by his aphorism, everything that God does is good. In the morning, he finds out really what happened. A group of conquistadors came to the town, swept through the town, killed everyone of its inhabitants. And he realized that if he was there, he might have been swept away with the victims if the animals would have given away his location or the candle would have belied his location, he too might have been a victim. And therefore, Robert Kiva is presented almost as the, the archetype, as the paragon of this idea of always seeing the positive, always seeing that God judges us fairly, and therefore it's appropriate. Like the Ram tells us, it's appropriate. If, if anyone's going to convey us this message, it's Rabbi Kiva who lived by the principle, and also died by it too, and to a certain extent, he himself recognized the justness of his demise. Now, what about with the last part of the Mishnah? And everything is in accordance to the abundance of actions. It doesn't seem to really have an immediate understanding. What does it mean everything is in accordance with the abundance of actions? It doesn't seem to really connect to the previous teachings of the myth. What does it mean even? Everything is in accordance with the abundance of actions. So the same Ruach Haim, and it's elaborated in great length in the Maharal, they share a very deep idea. They say that, and again, this is a concept, there's a broad concept in the Talmud, when the righteous suffer here in this world, it is a means to cleanse them of their sins and to avail them to be unmolested in Omaba. Whereas when the wicked flourish in this world, that is a means of punishing them in Omaba. Meaning they get the reward here, they exhaust their reward here, and they get punished in Omaba. For example, the Talmud in the Book of Brachos on page 7a tells us that Moses asked God four questions. Sometimes you have righteous people, they flourish. Sometimes you have righteous people, they suffer. 
Sometimes, sometimes you have wicked people, they flourish. And sometimes you have wicked people that suffer. Why is there seemingly randomness in how God treats people here? And God responded by telling him the following formulation. Righteous people that flourish, those are people that are completely righteous. Righteous people that suffer, those are righteous people that are only partially righteous. Wicked people that suffer are completely wicked. And wicked people that flourish are only partially wicked. They have some mitzvos. Meaning that if you have a wicked person has a few mitzvos, they'll flourish here and they'll be punished there. Whereas you have a righteous person that has a few sins, they'll be punished here so they can flourish there. That formulation is found all over the Talmud. For example, the book of Kedushin, page 40b, the book of Ta'anit, Tainis on page 11a, that same breakdown, that same framework is present that a righteous person who has a few sins is punished here so that way an Olam in the afterlife they can be rewarded fully and a wicked person who has a few mitzvos can be rewarded here and punished fully in Olam The question that Rabbi Kiva is addressing is as follows, according to the commentators. If you have someone that's entirely righteous, well, then they clearly fit into one camp. They're entirely righteous. If you have someone that's entirely wicked, then they too fit into one camp. They're entirely wicked. There's no question about them. But everyone in the middle, they're partially righteous, partially wicked. Or they're partially wicked and partially righteous. So how do we determine is someone a righteous person that has a few sins or is someone a wicked person that has a few mitzvahs? If someone is a collection... If someone has a little bit of both, everyone in the middle, they're partially like this and partially like that. All of us are, in, are, are somewhere along this continuum, this spectrum between fully righteous and fully wicked. And therefore, we have to be – there's only four categories. There's only fully righteous, fully wicked, partially righteous, partially wicked, meaning righteous with a few sins, wicked with a few itzos. If there's only four categories and then there's a huge spectrum spanning from entirely righteous to entirely wicked, how do we determine which person, they're really righteous, but they have a few sins. And we could very easily say the opposite. They're really wicked, but they have a few mitzvahs. Both of them would be technically true to everyone in the middle. So where is the breakdown along the spectrum between someone who is righteous with a few missteps, with a few misdeeds, and therefore they're righteous, but they're not fully righteous, and they have a few sins. Whereas there's some point in the, along this continuum where they're they're wicked. That's their identity. They have a few missteps. They're not entirely wicked, but they're still wicked in 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 aggregate. That's what he's coming to answer in this last statement. Everything is in accordance with the preponderance, with the abundance of deeds. Meaning, yes, there is a continuum, but there is some point where the abundance of someone's behavior determines their identity. And yes, it might be detracted by the other actions that conflict to that, but what are they overall? Overall, if they're righteous, if the abundance of actions are righteous, then they're righteous. Yes, they have some sins to account for, but they're overall righteous. Whereas if the abundance of of actions are sins then overall they're a sinner. And yes, they have some mitzvos that must be rewarded, that must be compensated in some fashion, and the might is fair to everyone. 
But they're put into that category via the abundance of actions. So again, there's a certain continuum. Everyone is judged with goodness. And how do we determine who's righteous but has a few sins and therefore will be punished here for those few sins? And who's wicked but has a few mitzvahs and therefore will be rewarded for those mitzvahs? That is God's calculation to figure out in accordance with the preponderance, with the abundance of actions. Very deep idea, but I want to point out that there could be one mitzvah that's worth, you know, the equivalent of a thousand mitzvahs. Because the way the mitzvahs are not only in abundance, the question of, of, of quantity, but also, it's also a question of quality. If someone does, for example, a mitzvah that's very difficult for them, so we learn in, in, uh, in the Talmudic literature that one difficult mitzvah is the equivalent of 100 easy mitzvahs. So if someone has a difficult mitzvah, they have to work harder to get it. That is the equivalent of, of 100 easy mitzvahs. And sometimes it could be multiplied even a thousandfold. So, you know, for me, to put on tefillin in the morning, it's a very easy mitzvah. Do you know why? Because if I didn't do it, I'd feel terrible. I'd feel, I, I'd, I'd feel absolutely beside myself with, with, with misery. So how much of a mitzvah is it? Not really a great mitzvah. I've been Shabbos observers my whole life. So for me, to not flick a light on a Shabbos, I wouldn't even think about it. I have zero desire to do it. It's not a difficult mitzvah for me at all. But for someone who's never grown up with that, they're always used to watching the news, watching the cartoons on, on Saturday morning. For them to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to change my life. That's probably worth 10,000 of one of me came Shabbos is worth 10,000 for them. And therefore, everyone likes to say, well, rabbi, you have it easy. Your, your grandfather's a famous rabbi and, and you come from a religious family and you always had kosher food. You have it easy. I say, no, you have it easy. Because to me, to get to a thousand mitzvahs, to get to 10,000 mitzvahs, it takes years. For someone who didn't grow up with it, it takes like a half hour. It takes five minutes. It's so easy for you. Because all you got to do is do one mitzvah, which is very, very difficult for you. But one mitzvah can be equal to a thousand or tenth or a hundred thousand for me. That's why the Almighty does that calculation. But I always say it's, it's the exact opposite. You think that the religious people who grew up with observance, they have it easy? To the contrary. The people that don't grow up with it, they have it way easier. Because for them to do a hundred thousand mitzvahs, much easier because it's harder for them and therefore it's easier. So I think it's, uh, that's a, it's a very, it's a very valuable thought. And, you know, I think maybe Robert Kiva is also the appropriate uh, teacher of that lesson because, after all, he himself grew up. He wasn't necessarily someone who – he was an ignoramus. He didn't, he didn't know anything until he was 40. And then he became the greatest scholar of, of his time. So he ended up with everything, not only the abundance of, of actual deeds, but also someone who had a very difficult time because he started off with nothing. He became qualitatively the greatest sage of his era and quantitatively too. So, so that's, uh, that's some of the commentaries. Again, they, they make that formulation that everything is in the preponderance of actions. How to fit into which category? Are you righteous with a few sins? Are you wicked with a few mitzvahs? That is done in accordance with the abundance of actions. Where do you fall on that scale? The Rambam, he has another valuable, very valuable lesson, the way he understands this. The Rambam tells us that change how is change done? You know, today everyone wants to change habits. You have bad habits. You, you know, some people are smoking. Everyone's trying to change their diet to improve their diet, to do more exercise, study more Torah. And of course, change is difficult because habit is, 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 is ingrained within us. And to change it, we have to overcome a lot of, a lot of headwinds. 
But the Ram tells us that the way change is done is that he understands that the last sentence of everything is done in, in accordance with the abundance of one's deeds. Change is done by quantitative actions, not qualitative actions. And the example that he gives is someone wants to make a donation of a thousand gold coins. So if they give one donation of a thousand gold coins, it's very difficult and it's a great deed, but it's not going to change them because they only, they only have to overcome themselves once. Whereas if someone takes those very same thousand gold coins and every time he gives one at a time and every time it's difficult, he gives one, two, ten, five hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred, and he eventually gives a thousand gold coins, but each time it was a stretch, it was a stretch for him, each time it was difficult for them, that activity, that practice, of doing something that was difficult to do and you do it, you did it anyhow and you did it again and again and again, eventually you're going to change those habits and many times overcoming your inborn tendencies, that's eventually a way to acquire good de- good traits and to change yourself in a very fundamental way. So not a very valuable lesson that change is done when you have some inborn resistance to that change and you're constantly kind of battering it. You're constantly resisting again and again. Eventually, that makes it easier and that's how to change. Not just saying, oh, I'll do one grand magnanimous action and that will eventually change my habits. No, habits are changed with small actions again and again, repeatedly. The abundance of actions, that is what garners true change. So a very valuable lesson. Again, very short Mishnah. You can read it very quickly and miss a lot of the nuance but a lot of the critical concepts, critical questions, critical dilemmas of Jewish life and, and theology are found over here in this very short Mishnah from Rabbi Kiva. And next time we'll see the fourth teaching that Rabbi Kiva gives, uh, another very powerful idea. And the fourth teaching of Rabbi Kiva will be the last one that we see from him in, in Perti Avos. I look forward to it next time.